Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome to today's edition of the Baseball America College Podcast. I'm Teddy Cahill. Joining me, as always, is Joe Healy, and we are here to talk all about the goings-on around college baseball here this week and to look ahead to uh, what should be a pretty good Week 7 that includes some some high-level series and also uh, the start of American Athletic Conference play, really the last major conference to get it going in conference play. So we're going to talk a little bit about the AAC season to date. Spoiler alert, it has not been a banner start to the year for the Americans. So we're going to get into that. Uh, We're coming to you a day early because, or maybe not a full day early, we're coming to you a little early because the, this being Easter weekend, a lot of games start on Thursday this week. So uh, if you're, if you're listening to this on Thursday, you know, you've got some time before these games start, but that that is uh, just a thing to be mindful of. Most of most of college baseball, or many series around college baseball, get kicked up on Thursday this week. So, I've uh, got a lot to get to, but first, I've got to let you know that the Baseball America College Podcast is presented by Rapsodo. Rapsodo has become the industry standard in player performance data. Coaches use Rapsodo data as a measuring stick for player development and evaluation. The Rapsodo National Player Database is a free service that allows you to see how you stack up against your peers and provides a pathway to get discovered by scouts. To check out the Rapsodo National Player Database, go to rapsodo.com slash national database. All right, Joe, we're recording this on the final day of March. This is the last day, I guess you could say this is March. It's also the last day before the Major League Baseball season starts, and I know a lot of people are excited about that, both in and out of college baseball. Uh, but we have our attention on this uh, this week seven of college baseball. Indeed, we do. It's one of the things I used to think about when I was first getting into college baseball is how college baseball gets this really pretty lengthy head start. I mean, we're, we're what, rolling into week seven here. And, you know, Major League Baseball starting here in a couple of days. And by the time many people listen to this, college or pro baseball will have started. But I, I always thought about it as a kid, how it's kind of funny that because of the scheduling differences where MLB is just day after day, after day, after day, like it really only takes like six or seven weeks for MLB to more or less catch up to where college baseball is. And right around the time that college baseball is going to regionals, MLB has started to really close the gap on total number of games. And that doesn't mean anything. That doesn't matter. It's not consequential in any way, but it's just kind of the, like my brain was just kind of always fixated on that idea. And to this day, I have no idea why. Cause I don't even really find it that interesting. It's just a thing that happens, but it's like my, my brain was required to kind of set a clock on like where we are in the season versus some other, some other sports. Like it's, it's setting like some timestamps or something. I don't, I don't know, but I, st- I don't think about it as often as I used to, but I, I, I still do think about it every time we start going into regionals, like, Oh, you know, major league baseball is about, you know, 45, 50 games in now they're really catching up to us. And again, it doesn't matter, but I, it's something I think about. 
there's a lot of conversion this weekend, you know, between the start of the major league baseball season, the final four of the basketball tournaments and um, a lot, a lot happening here and an interesting weekend of college baseball on tap, maybe not quite the busier, or I mean, they're all busy weekends at this point, but not, not necessarily a busy weekend of blockbuster series. Uh, we'll talk about Florida and Ole Miss in a bit, uh, but the shine really got taken off of that one when Florida got swept last weekend and denied us a top five series again this week. Uh, so just a little bit less in terms of ranked matchups. Maybe that'll mean a little bit of an easier ranking for us next week, Joe. Maybe things could stay a little more static week to week. We'll see. Uh, you know, sometimes these weekends do provide, you know, with so many upset opportunities, sometimes these weekends really deliver on those. So we'll, uh, we'll see how this weekend shakes out, but uh, you know, as always, you can subscribe to the baseball America college podcast on your favorite podcasting app, Apple podcast, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you're listening to podcasts, subscribe. And uh, you know, we'll be, We'll be continuing to, to give you your, your college baseball fix throughout the season. Um, today here, we wanted to talk a little bit about the American. I mentioned uh, there, Joe wrote in three strikes this week about where the American stands going into the start of its conference play. We've talked a little bit on the podcast before about you know how the American hasn't looked amazing to this point and what that means for its NCAA tournament chances. But Joe really dug into it this week ahead of the start of conference play. And I I think it's a good time uh, to to kind of address where the the league is. You've got East Carolina. They're ranked number eight in the country and they're playing really well. They just beat North Carolina on Tuesday night there. They certainly look like the class of the league again. And then from there, it's just kind of one jumbled mess. No team really much ahead of the others. A lot of the teams are just within one or two games of 500, one side or the other. And, you know, you have some teams that look pretty good at this point or look okay, at least like Houston and Wichita state. And then you have central Florida, which has you know that big series win at Ole Miss, but also, a lot of losses beside it. And I don't know, Joe, it, uh, you know, just let's leave the NCAA tournament aside for a second. Just when, when we came into this season, we thought UCF, we had them as the favorite ranked number 24 in the country. We had East Carolina, not very far out of the top 25. And there was a lot of talk between us about like, Oh, what about like Tulane and Houston? Like they seem like they can be pretty good this year. And Wichita was off to such a sensational start in 2020, even if it was against not so great of a schedule, like what are the shockers going to look like in 2021? And, you know, Memphis has a preseason All-American and Hunter Goodman, and you could really feel good about the teams all up and down the league. And now as it stands, there's not a whole lot uh, to differentiate them and not a whole lot to uh, that's really been standout to this point in the year. Yeah, it's just a, a big pile of meh in the American is really the only way I can put it. And you're right. I, you know, I kind of forgot about that, to be honest, that little part, the little piece of, we actually were really excited about the American this year. We had Travis Jewett on the podcast. We had Greg Lovelady on the podcast. We talked a lot about what we liked about East Carolina. We talked about the hot star. Eric Wedge too. Don't forget him. Had a Eric Wedge on the podcast. You're right. So, I mean, we talked a lot about the American and we were really excited about it. It's just, 
fallen flat. I, I really thought the American could exist in a place where, you know, we talked a lot about how is older rosters, more experienced rosters in college baseball going to be expressed in the actual schedule. And I thought the American actually sat in a place where they would be able to take advantage of that because these schools weren't so loaded with talent that they lost a lot of guys to the draft, but also they are talented enough being one of the better conferences outside of the traditional power conferences that they would have enough talent there to where they could maybe take advantage of being pretty talented and older. You know, they were kind of that nice cross section. Now, some of that was probably foolhardy on my point, because when you break it down, you know, Tulane actually lost a lot on offense. UCF had some transfers on the pitching staff that the replacements for which have not been as good as they hoped they would be. Uh, You know, so there were some individual reasons why maybe that was a little bit foolhardy on my part, at least. But with that being said, it was still an interesting conference that we thought uh, would be would be pretty good and it just hasn't been that. And I, there's just been a lot of missed opportunities. I mean, that's the thing is not one of these teams has necessarily gotten off to like an, Oh my God, that's an awful start. Like no one, no one here is sitting at five and 20 or anything like that. But you know, UCF had that win against Ole Miss, that, that series win against Ole Miss, but hasn't done anything else. You know, Tulane had a chance against Mississippi state and didn't take it. You know, Houston had a chance against Texas and didn't really take advantage. So the opportunities for American teams to make statements have been there and it's just been one whiff after another. And all you have to do is look at, you know, the, the records against teams in the RPI top 50, which imperfect metric, I get it, but it gives you a general feeling. And outside of East Carolina, who's eight and one against that metric, uh, UCF is two and one because the only games they played against that metric are Ole Miss and everyone else has one or zero wins against the RPI top 50. Um, so it's just been a lot of missed opportunity for this conference to make that kind of statement. And no one outside of East Carolina really seems to be set up to actually take advantage. That UCF record looks uh, especially good because Liberty lost yesterday to Duke. And if they don't do that, they're now 52. If they don't take that loss, uh, they're going to stay in the top 50. And then UCF is staring at two and four against top 50 teams. So uh, momentarily looking a little bit better. Also, you can get Liberty into the top 50 pretty easily by just deleting the Metro Atlantic uh, schools, which I uh, sure wish uh, can't wait for that to happen. They, uh, they're they playing conference only, and I don't understand how Fairfield, Ryder, and Quinnipiac are all top 10 uh, in RPI, but that's where it stands right now. You just remove those three teams and uh, you slide Liberty into the top 50 and again, then UCF two and four. So it, it doesn't look good no matter how you slice it. And you know, so now when I start looking at projected field of 64 stuff, we had, I don't remember in the preseason, if we had three or four teams, what side of the bubble Houston was on, but we certainly were looking at, uh, there was definitely at least a chance for, for four teams for the American. And now East Carolina's locked in. They are looking like they're going to host. It's early, obviously, but like they're doing everything they need to do to do that. Nobody else is really doing what they need to do to get into the tournament. We still have a second team from the American in our projected field, but there's a whole lot of emphasis on projected there. It's Houston right now. I have Wichita on the on the bubble. Um, Houston's RPI is atrocious. It's really going to need to uh, to solve some things in American plates. Twelve and eleven right now. 
I think that our inclusion of Houston is more just a nod to its talent and our belief that right now they're the second best team in the American and that the American will produce a second bid. But Houston is, has eight games straight against Wichita State coming up over the next two weeks. And whoever emerges from those eight games as the better team, I think is probably going to be the uh, be the favorite for that second bid, you know, barring UCF or Cincinnati or Tulane getting hot. Uh, you know, I, I don't know where it's going to come from in the American, but Joe, you actually, rather than just like me looking at general trends and uh, you know, kind of trying to read some tea leaves here, you, you dug a little bit deeper and what did you find about the American and it's uh, not so great position as it enters conference play? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's really going to have to work hard to be a two-bid league, which sounds unfathomable because it's the American. It's this conference that has been held up, and rightfully so, as the best baseball conference that's not the power conferences. And, and you can even make an argument, it versus the Big Ten, those two conferences kind of flip-flop being in favor. I mean, in, in baseball terms, I just talk about it as a major conference. Yep. Like, it, it, it has earned that. Like, it typically lands somewhere in the top six in our, like the top six RPI conferences typically are the power five conferences and the American. And it gets multiple bids in every year for like, and not just two bids. Like we're talking about three, maybe four teams consistently. Like to me, it is, it is clearly a major conference. Yeah. I think you can kind of think of it a little bit. This isn't a perfect comparison, but you can think of it a little bit like the big East in basketball, not the old big East, the current big East where it's a power conference. It's not as strong as it used to be like, but it's clearly a power conference in that sport. Minus so, Villanova at the top contending for national titles. That was exactly the caveat I was <laughs> thinking yes. of in my head is like, they do have that one team that's because that's the thing about the American too, just on a side note is like kind of waiting on one of these teams to establish itself as like a national title contender. Year after year. I just like, would love for one of them to make it to Omaha. They've I'd yet be, to that accomplish that. Yeah, that would be, that would be great. Anywho, so it's a conference that's going to have to work hard to get there, though. Now, what I will say is that we don't know, like we're going to talk some RPI here, and it's important to know that we don't know exactly where RPI will, um, how RPI will be viewed when it comes to the committee deliberations and the field of 64. However, what I would tell you is look at the way the basketball field got made, and yes, basketball is fortunate that it has not, it has the net, which is, was the, the kind of what succeeded the RPI in basketball, but it also has Ken Palm and Sagarin and strength of record. And they have, they have a lot of metrics they pull from in basketball that can kind of offset some of this stuff. Baseball is not that advanced, but what I will say is that they used a pretty traditional method to build the college basketball field. They weren't kind of, you know, going off of, metrics and to, to pull teams in that they just kind of passed the eye test, quote unquote. So if you're hoping that this is going to be a year where a team finishes second place in the American, for example, and their RPI is 85 and they're going to go, well, it's a second place team in the American. Like that's a good league, which is true. We're just going to go ahead and, and put them in for that reason. I can't imagine that happening. Now they might not be in lockstep with RPI as they normally tend to be, but this is, I don't think we're going to see a year where they're just going to be wildly picking and choosing teams they want because they don't trust the RPI. We can argue whether that's a good thing or not, but I, I can't imagine that happening. And maybe later in another podcast, we can get into the reasons why we believe that to be true. But I think that we can work under that, that um, understanding moving forward. But the easiest way to get a second team in is someone other than East Carolina wins a conference tournament. I mean, that's always on the table. So there's that. 
Um, but if, if, it's, if, it, if they get a second team in, it's going to be one of two things, I think. It's that one team basically wins every game in American play or something close to it, except for their series against East Carolina, because they also can't have East Carolina tank, right? Like East Carolina can't go 500 in conference and get in. Like they have to do, they have to keep it up. But then another team has to come in and put up a record. They say they lose East Carolina, but they win basically every other series. They finish second in, the, in conference. Their RPI gets better. It's, you know, in the top 60, top 50, more likely. And now they're, now they're talking. But the trouble is a couple of things. One is that there aren't, now that they're out of conference play, the American is no longer doing midweek games. The teams you're facing are the teams you're facing right now. There's not going to be like a game Houston gets to play against A&M down the road. I guess a and not all that helpful this year necessarily, but Tulane doesn't get to play LSU down the road, um, you know, enter whatever midweek game here. So it, it's hard for me to imagine, and I'm not a mathematician on this. We can't predict this stuff out, but it's hard to me to imagine a scenario where, you know, a team just magically gets better in RPI, putting up a decent conference record. I think somebody's going to have to do something pretty, pretty special here. And the final thing I will say is I went back and looked at right now, the American is the seventh RPI conference, a couple notches down below where it normally is to Teddy's point. It's usually fourth, fifth in conference RPI. And it usually gets three, maybe four teams into the field. So the seventh RPI conference three, the last four years has been the big 10. And they've gotten in those years, three, five, and five teams into the field. But in the years they got five, it should have been four. They had Cinderella's win their conference tournament to get the fifth bid. So that, that comparison, as I wrote in the article, doesn't necessarily work because the Big Ten's a bigger conference. And the Big Ten arrives at being the seventh comp RPI conference because it has a lot of good teams and a lot of bad teams. The American is kind of stuck in the middle where they don't really have any horrible teams in the RPI, but they only have the one good one. And that's problematic. So I think the better avatar here is actually 2018 A-Sun, which was the seventh RPI conference that had a host in Stetson and it had Jacksonville as the second team in and Jacksonville basically got in because they beat every other team in the American, in the A-Sun. They lost all their games to Stetson, but Stetson was so good that year. It created a high tide situation and Jacksonville got in because they just basically didn't have any bad losses and the RPI was helped by playing Stetson. So to me, that actually seems like the most likely path forward here, where a team avoids every other loss except ECU, finishes second, gets in with the help of some eye test, some understanding the Americans a good conference, and then the RPI being a little bit better than it is right now. So my issue with that characterization is that Jacksonville went 26, like, like they had 26 non-conference wins. And... Like, obviously, this year, like, that's just not going to be a thing that, like, we see and included in that 26 is whatever they did in the postseason. I'm just subtracting their final record of 40 and 21 minus the 14 conference wins they had. But the point is, they were a legitimately good non-conference team, and none of these teams are legitimately good non-conference teams. So, you know, yes, they played good schedules. Yes, you know, Tulane is staring at is it three losses in Starkville and Houston lost a couple times to Texas and, you know, Liberty, you know, don't get swept at home by Liberty UCF, but like, you know, Liberty is, you know, minimally a bubbly team. And, you know, I, there are, there are good things on these resumes, but at the end of the day, like 
I don't know that there's anything that's going to distinguish them. So they're really going to need somebody to clean up in conference play. And that just is not something that ever happens in the American East Carolina is fully capable of doing it. They're they're They have pulled away from the pack before, but there's never been, or at least there rarely is much of any separation between these, you know, even bet- between one and eight in the American, there's rarely separation, but even in years where the, the regular season champion pulls away, all that means is then like two to seven or two to six minimally are all bunched up. And I think that's what you're looking at this year. And that's, that's really bad news for, for the entirety of the conference in terms of getting that second bid. So it may just come down to, can anyone go to Clearwater and beat East Carolina in a weekend where East Carolina may or may not have anything to play for. They may be playing for a top eight seed. They may not be. Yeah, that's that's definitely. I mean, if you're if you're forcing me to bet on a second team, like that's where it's coming from. I'm actually, to be honest, I'm very down on the idea that this is a, a two bid league for any reason other than some team went to Clearwater and won the conference tournament. So um, we'll, we'll obviously have to see it. Another comparison that I didn't do the digging on because it didn't feel quite right, but I think there's actually in these two conferences are kind of closely tied for a lot of reasons. But you know, recent conference USA is a little bit interesting where there's been years when Southern Miss has run away with things a little bit and then FAU gets in kind of at the last minute. But the difference, one of the differences there, to your point, is FAU is typically a good at a conference team. It's also that FAU almost annually, like down the stretch in like May, will pick up like a little kicker win against Florida or Miami or something that ends up, you know, really bumping them up. And it also kind of leaves leaves at least a good taste in the mouths of those who've seen FAU. Oh, FAU is playing well. You know, I think some of that can help. So they're not, the Americans are not going to have any of that. So that comparison didn't feel quite right to me either, but suffice it to say that the American is really in uncharted waters here. Yeah. I mean, I basically, I think what this is, is an Eastern version of the big West the last few years, and it's just not going to look natural for there only to be one American bid. Um, but like that is probably the way we're trending here. And oh, by the way, the Big West is having a terrible year this year too. So, you know, the, the, these two leagues that kind of exist like right on the edge of like, are they a major conference? Are they not a major conference? Like neither one of them having a, a particularly good season this year, but it may get papered over in the Americans case by uh, East Carolina. Cause if ECU puts together a nice run in the postseason, uh, there's probably not going to be a whole lot of time spent thinking about like, well, what, what went wrong for UCF and what went wrong for Tulane and what happened to Houston? Um, you know, so we'll see where, uh, where all of that takes us. Uh, the probably the series of the weekend for me in the American is, is Wichita state and Houston. And if you don't like it this weekend, you can catch it again next weekend, um, in a, in a little quirk of scheduling, but that's, uh, that's probably to me the, the most interesting thing that, that's happening in the American this weekend. You know, it's funny you bring up a team getting no if East Carolina gets Doma on. That's this is probably exactly why you bring it up. But you know, you know, Fullerton would make kind of like in recent years make the odd Omaha run here and there, and it really did kind of, you know, the the the, the people on the in the on the West Coast who, you know, still want to prop the Big West up as a major conference in college baseball point to Omaha appearances when really I think those are just for the most part just kind of like little happy accidents that Fullerton you know, got hot at the right time and, and really did kind of paper over some of the, the shortcomings of that conference that we're now seeing front and center. So that, that is an interesting comparison if that's the way it ends up really playing out. 
All right. So we'll uh, we'll check back in the American throughout the season, of course. But uh, you know, that just wanted to give you guys a little bit of a taste of, of where things stand. We are going to move on to uh, you know highlighting some of the weekend's biggest series, some of the keys to watch in those series. Uh, and we'll get to all of that here in a second. But first, check this out. All right, Joe, it's time to take a look at the biggest series of the weekend, or at least the most intriguing series in our eyes. Going to pick a few to highlight here, and then Joe will pick uh, one of his own that's maybe a little bit off the radar of, uh, of the top line uh, primo stuff that, that we, we definitely want you guys to know about something uh, that, that you're you as the dedicated college baseball fan can, uh, you know, dig a little deeper on this weekend. So uh, to get things started off, though, let's go with that showdown between Ole Miss and Florida. As I mentioned earlier in the podcast, this series had a chance to be a top five series. Like if they played it a week ago, it would have been number four and number five. Instead, it's number three Ole Miss going to number 14 Florida. Florida had hit a hit a pretty significant stat snag last week in Columbia, South Carolina. They got swept by South Carolina. They weren't non-competitive. They definitely should have won on Friday. They led the game going into the ninth and going into the bottom of the 12th, 13th, whatever it ended in. They were winning. And South Carolina came back twice in that game and then was uh, impressive over the next two days of the series to complete their first sweep of Florida in like 15 years. So now Florida comes in with a little more urgency coming back to Gainesville. Ole Miss, meanwhile, comes in at 20 and four, six and zero in the SEC. They're six and zero in the SEC for the first time in more than 50 years. And uh, the fact that this series is on the road, like, I mean, I'm sure it help, will help Florida. They play pretty well in Gainesville, uh, but I'm not sure Ole Miss is going to notice. They, uh, They've played a fair amount of games away from Swayze Field, at least for like a, a high-end SEC team at this point. Uh, Ole Miss is uh, is six and one away from Swayze, and all of those games are against good competition. That's three at the tournament in Arlington against the best three teams in the Big Twelve. That's uh, a series at Alabama last weekend, which they swept, and uh, a game at Louisiana Tech, which is a top 25 team now. So, you know, they're not going to be, you know, playing on the road has not been a problem for Ole Miss uh, to this point of the season. So it'll be interesting to see how this one shakes out. But uh, I do think the urgency that Florida is playing with will be interesting to uh, to watch. 100%. Yeah, I, I, Florida just needs it. They need it bad. And you know, they, if they lose this series, suddenly they're underwater in the SEC. And that's not necessarily something to get overly worked up about because, so as we've talked about before, they're just going to be teams under 500 or fighting around 500 in the SEC and the ACC that it's just the nature of the, of the beast in those conferences. Well, they also still have, like, it'd be under 500, but they still have Missouri. And, you know, we'll see how good Kentucky is, but they've yet to play either of the two teams that we expect to be the two worst teams in their division. For sure. Yeah. If they finish under 500, we'll probably have a different discussion, but you know, they'll be, they'd be four and five in that scenario. And, you know, it's a little early for worry about that, but, but certainly there, there does need to be a little bit of a sense of urgency here. I think with Ole Miss, one thing that I was a little um, interested to see with Ole Miss is there's no denying last year's team 
just had kind of a um, some mojo, I guess, for lack of a better way of putting it. That team was really good. They knew they were good. They were playing really well at the time the season ended. Obviously, that's continued. So I was a little worried that maybe, you know, they lose some pieces off of that team, notably Servidio and Keenan. Do they roll that over into 2021? And it kind of looks like they have. It feels like a pretty just similar team in terms of having that mojo going. And you add on top of that, oh, yeah, now Gunnar Hoagland is one of the best arms in college baseball. And, you know, they lost McKaysey for a while, but it didn't really matter. So uh, this team really, really is rolling here and um, has gone a little bit. You know, we, we talked about last week how Arkansas and Mississippi State took some of the shine last weekend because they were playing against each other and it kind of um, maybe boxed out Ole Miss from being in the discussion among the best teams in the SEC. But they're they're really right there. Um, on, Florida, on Florida's side, like, you can point to a couple things that have gotten them where they are here. And one of them is that Hunter Barco on Sundays has, has not been very good. It's kind of a weird stat line because he's still, he's not really walking anybody and he's striking out a ton, but it's just that he's maybe getting hit a little bit better than, than he would expect. And it, I'm guessing he's had some cluster luck with the, with the hits and just some bad innings. I know against Miami early in the season, it was just like things just snowballed on him in, in one inning. But the other thing is Judd Fabian and they're, they're different players, different positions. So let me be very, very clear because I know some listeners will take this as a literal comp and I, I don't mean it that way. I'm just saying in terms of the performance, it reminds me a little bit, some of like later stage Casey Martin at Arkansas, where he's still hitting with some power, but the strikeouts are a real problem. Uh, he's got 40 of them so far this season and uh, less than hundred at bats. And so he just hasn't been the dynamic player that I think, I know I thought he would be coming into the season. I know Teddy thought he would be coming into the season. And if, if Fabian's doing, you know, the, the offense has still been pretty good for Florida by and large, but if Fabian is the player that we thought he would, like suddenly we're looking at, you know, one of the better offenses in the country. And it just hasn't been that because we're talking about a potential national player of the year that just hasn't been anywhere close to the level that we thought he was going to be coming into the season. Yeah. I mean, that's, uh, that's been an issue. I, the pitching has been okay. Uh, this year and like that's that's maybe not for Florida maybe that, that doesn't sound very good at all uh, their their starters last week and none of them went more than five that's an issue uh, but their fielding has been an issue too it's just been a lot of things that Florida typically does not struggle with they've struggled with this year and they clean any one of them up if you know they find a way to uh, you know, get the most out of Mace, Leftwich, and Barco, which is supposed to be the best rotation in the country, or at least on the very short list, if they clean up the defense so that it feels like one of the best teams in the country like Florida traditionally does instead of what is right now uh, a, probably a below average fielding team. Uh, if they, you know, get, it's not just, it's not just Fabian uh, among like the, the premium Florida position players that aren't really doing what you would anticipate them doing. Now, Fabian's the, uh, the highest profile of those, but Josh Rivera, who I was so very excited about, uh, you know, going back to when he was in high school and he's hitting sub 200 right now. Uh, that's not, it's not what we you would expect. Jacob Young is sitting 327, so I don't want to you know put anything on him. But that's also a guy that has hit close to or above 400 um, previously. So 
you know, there's just been a lot of stuff that hasn't quite come together for the Gators. And I guess you could look at that very positively that, okay, you know, yeah, they're where they are right now. They're not where they want to be, but theoretically the talent is all still there and they'll clean it up and they'll get a whole lot better going forward because right now they're not playing anything close to their ceiling. And, you know, they are still, I mean, they, they swept Texas A&M like the two weeks ago, like not even two weeks ago, whatever. Um, so you can look at it that way. I mean, you can also look at it and say like, okay, this is a month into the season. Like why has nothing clicked yet? And, you know, I, I would still bet on them figuring some stuff out. I also think that, you know, sometimes things just don't come together. We're talking about 18 to 22 year old athletes. Like sometimes it's just not going to work the way that you expected it to work. Um, and that's, uh, I mean, there, there's, there's a very real chance, I suppose, that that's what you're looking at here with the Gators, but I, I would bet on them figuring it out eventually I don't know that it's going to happen this weekend, though, because Ole Miss has been ultra impressive. I mean, yeah, UCF found a way to win that series, but nobody else has really figured out anything out, anything out against the Rebs. Tim Elko was one of the best hitters in the country over the last month after you know a slower start. First couple of weeks of the season, he's really, really, really turned it on, playing like the player that, that they need him to be to fill in for. You know, some of those guys, they lost in the middle of the order last year and they got Doug McKaysey back last weekend, which is big. They have Gunnar Hogland pitching like a top 10 pick. Uh, they've got a lot going on right now. And, you know, they're they're going to be a difficult team for Florida to beat this weekend. Indeed. I, I forget if I've said this on a podcast or if you and I both have done some media stuff where we've talked to people about Ole Miss. I forget if it's like I've talked to you about this or if I've talked to someone else about it, but one of the impressive things that they've done is, you know, getting guys like Kevin Graham and Tim Elko who have been nice players in the past to now become stars in this lineup. And it's kind of the Louisville method where sometimes in college baseball, we're guilty of, we lose players on rosters. And so when we look to, okay, who's the next star, sometimes we're guilty of like looking at the next recruiting class and just kind of, you know, uh, assuming like a plug and play situation here. And sometimes we overlook the guys who have been biding their time or the guys who have, you know, played, but haven't really broken out yet. And, um, you know, Louisville time and time again, shows us the folly in that. However, you know, um, you know, it's a mistake we still continue to make. And, and Ole Miss is giving us another example with those two guys in particular, because, you know, the offense has been pretty good and, and they've been right in the middle of it without those two kind of turning into stars the way they have, I think it would be a very different story with how we feel about uh, the Ole Miss offense at, at this point in time. And so for Ole Miss, I think that's a big thing. I think that the, last week we saw South Carolina and yes, there was some, they got some help from the wind and things like that on some of the home runs for South Carolina. I get it. But I think we saw a little bit of a blueprint with South Carolina. Florida's pitching has not been quite as good as they expected it to be. They've also, because of some injuries, don't have the depth they may be expected to have. And if you can bury these Florida pitchers kind of early on, um, they're still probably going to get linked for Mason Leftwich because they typically, you know, have those guys, you know, very rarely are those guys getting pulled early, even when they struggle a little bit, they, they tend to ride that a little, but if you can kind of bury them in the way South Carolina did, I think they show that that is a, 
a path to success against this particular Florida team with the way it's playing right now? Well, I should say there are rumors that we don't have a Florida um, projected starters yet. There are some rumblings that they're going to go with openers in this series. We'll see if mm. that does anything, particularly assuming that it does come to fruition. I don't, I don't know what they expect to accomplish with that. Uh, I, I realize that by saying that out loud, I run the risk of looking like a real idiot if they uh, if they sweep this series. But you know, they're talking about that taking Leftwich and Mace and, and using them behind openers. Like, I I don't know. We'll see. Um, I, I trust Kevin O'Sullivan when it comes to pitching. But, you know, when uh, when you start doing that, you know, I, 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 I don't know. That just goes very much against everything that, that Florida has, has done to this point. Um, and we'll, uh, we'll, we'll just have to wait and see if they do it and then what it looks like. I, I think the idea behind it would be that, you know, yes, none of the guys in the rotation were particularly good a week ago, but they've also found some difficulty closing uh, outside of Scott and Sprout. A lot of the bullpen pieces that you would have expected them to rely on haven't been quite as good. So maybe by taking a Franco Alamon, who's been a starter his whole career, putting him back there maybe that maybe he responds better to that than to pitching out of the bullpen and then maybe you know you can cover a couple innings that you need Alamon to cover because he's a really talented pitcher uh, and you just cover them at the front of the game rather than at the back of the game yeah well let's see I mean that's a an illustration of where Florida is for better or worse at this point in time that this is a team that we never expected to have to experiment like this and, and yet here they are all right, so we uh, will definitely be keeping an eye on that one. Next one I wanted to highlight. Let's go to the ACC, Joe. It's the ACC series that no one ever expected to, to be as significant as this one is. It's number 12, Notre Dame, and number 17, Pittsburgh. If I told you coming into the season that this would be a top 20 showdown with implications not only for the ACC title race, but also for the hosting race. Uh, there's no chance anyone would have believed me like at all. Um, as much as I talk about the Oma Irish, uh, the idea that they would have been a top 20 team at this point, And then, Oh, by the way, Pitt is going to be a top 20 team uh, that uh, that would have seemed an awful far fetched, far fetched to me. But yet here we are uh, Notre Dame coming in, still with the best record in the ACC pit has been more up and down. The record reflects that they're just eight and seven in the uh, ACC. Now I almost said the big East uh, they're just eight and seven in the ACC following a sweep at the hands of Virginia tech. They need to, they need to get right. And they're going to be doing it against a team that has to this point, not lost a series all year. Yeah, good characterization there, too, about, you know, Pitt being a little more up and down. You can not only see it in the record, um, but, it, it, you know, they, um, you know, they've had some ups and downs in terms of just kind of the way they've they've played and, and and you know, the, the quality of competition that they've played does not necessarily seem to make a whole lot of difference in them being up and down. It's just been kind of a weird, a weird year for them. Like it's, I'm a firm believer in this Pitt team is for real to the extent they are going to hang around. I don't think they're going away. Um, you know, I, I don't think they're going to win like something like 
you know, five ACC games the rest, the entire rest of the season or something. But, um, you know, they are just sitting at eight and seven. They lose this series. Suddenly they're underwater in the ACC. And I say that to say I'm a lot more confident in what Notre Dame is doing to this point versus what Pitt has done. If one of them falls off, I would probably uh, be more inclined to, um, to go with Pitt there. That's easy, easy thing to say, given, given the records, but it is just kind of the up and down nature of well, I mean, it's also the obvious thing to say. We're talking about the Oma Irish or Pitt. I don't, have, I don't have any sort of like Omaha shorthand for Pitt. No, I mean, I'm trying to do it on the fly and I can't do it. So that probably tells you all they need to pit Maha. Is that something? <laughs> Is pit Maha something? Uh, I, th- I think that still needs some workshopping. Yeah, there's no bad ideas. That's like when I, wor- when I worked in the software industry, we'd have these like no bad ideas meetings, which are kind of fun because like it frees you up to, to like just – throw anything out there and like pit maha is my is my opening salvo so we'll have to we'll have to uh to build off of off of that but pit is one of those classic teams virginia tech's a little like this although i feel like we're getting a better feel for virginia tech where you look at pit having success and you're like let me dig in and see exactly why they're having success and it's not like super clear to you because the numbers don't really necessarily jump out at you i think the one thing i will say is that they've gotten pretty steady starting pitching. Like, you know, Mitch Myers and Matt Gilbertson at the front of the rotation, like neither of those guys have been just lights out dominant, but they, they eat innings. They know what they're going to get from that group. They found some guys in the bullpen that are, that are having, having nice years. Um, so I think that's kind of been like their standby is that they, they, they know what they're going to get the first couple of days of the series on the mound. And it's one of those classic deals where they're, they're just pretty good at doing just enough to, to get it done. I have not followed up, but one thing to watch with, with Pitt is that David Yanni, who was playing second base for them, injured his shoulder in the finale of that Virginia Tech series. And that's problematic because he's their best power bat, um, not hitting for a ton of average, but has a high on base, um, you know, leads the team in eight with eight home runs. Nico Popa also has five home runs. But once you get past those two guys, there's not a ton of pop in that lineup. Um or Pope as Nico Popa, not a lot of time. Anyway, um, there's the word is he, he is day to day. But according to Stephen Thompson, who is the, the student reporter uh, at the Pitt News covering baseball, Mike Bell is optimistic that Yanni will play. Okay. Well, that would be good news. Like we'll have to see what, you know, what percentage he's at and shoulder seems like a, like a big deal. <laughs> I'm trying to swing a bat, but um, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll kind of have to, we'll see how that, how that plays. I think there's an opportunity for, for Pitt here. One thing I've been waiting to see, and we just haven't seen it in the third game against Louisville would have perhaps given us that opportunity. But I, I do think with the way Notre Dame has done some interesting things with their pitching, they do feel they haven't been pushed necessarily. So that's part of it. They play, been playing so well, they haven't been forced into it, but it does feel like there's maybe not as much depth in the bullpen as they would like at this point in time feels like there's an opportunity if you're a team that can get to their starting pitchers and get into the bullpen, you can have some success. They just haven't, no team has really successfully been able to do that yet. Louisville might've been that team, but again, didn't play on Sunday. So, um, and the one time we did see that, you know, they had a 14 inning or whatever game against Duke and and they did just fine. So maybe that's a faulty premise, but it, it does feel like there's an opportunity there. No team has really been able to tap into that. And I don't know, you know, Pitt's offense is okay, not great. I, I just I don't know that they can necessarily really do it either. But yeah, I don't I don't think this is the team that's going to be able to do it. This is a team that has Pitt. Pitt has what nineteen home runs as a right. team. They strike out at kind of an alarming rate. Um, I don't 
if they're going to win this series, if Pitt is going to do it, I, I think they're going to have to pitch and shut Notre Dame down because I Notre Dame's pitched at a pretty high level all season. It's looked different from week to week. It looked strange last week just versus what they've done all season. They moved Joe Sheridan uh, from being a bullpen ace to being the Friday starter. Um, you know, they're still they're still trying to figure out, I think, what the pieces are and how they all fit together. But I, you know, the, the, the pit offense is solid. It just doesn't seem like the kind of offense that really is going to be the one that exposes the Notre Dame pitching staff. Finally. I think I would agree with that assessment. You know, I think Pitt's going to have to have to pitch it well. And um, it'll be an interesting matchup with the, you bring up the strikeout rate and, and that is, that is true. Um, I, I had not noticed how high that strikeout rate is. And then, you know, on the other side, you know, Notre Dame, not the highest strikeout pitching staff. So it does make for an interesting little contrast matchup there that we'll have to see how that ends up playing out. Yeah. I mean, uh, Pitt scored nine runs last weekend. That's not going to get it done. Probably not. Um, Probably not. That's, uh, that's, that's just not going to get it done. And, um, you know, the, the thing to watch with Notre Dame is a, how they decide to align the pitch and staff, because again, on a week to week basis, that feels like it changes. So we'll be intrigued to see how that, how that gets sorted. And then they're also one of the best fielding teams in the country. Uh, they don't give away extra opportunities very often. They actually did on Friday against Louisville and cost them, uh, but that it's very rare that that happens. So, you know, I would expect again this week that uh, you're, you're going to see uh, a well-played series and that, that Notre Dame is, uh, is going to lean on its pitching and defense. But, you know, again, this, this is a, it's an intriguing series. And again, just like the, the Florida Ole Miss series, you know, Pitt really kind of needs this one. They're the home team. Will that matter? A quick little cleaning up. Notre Dame, the best defense in the country. Tywood Navy, 991 fielding percentage. Fielding percentage isn't everything, but uh, it's a lot. And it uh, means they're making the routine plays, at the very least. There you go. There you go. All right. Well, let's uh, go across the country now uh, to the Pac-12. We got number 16, Arizona. And unranked Arizona State, though uh, unofficially probably team number 26 for multiple weeks. Um, they've been close. And this is really their opportunity. Their schedule to this point, the Sun Devils, has not been particularly difficult except for a trip to Oregon. And they lost that series in Eugene. Now they get the Wildcats. They get them in Phoenix Muni. And it is going to be a fascinating matchup between Arizona who I will again say has probably the best offense in the country. I've probably said that 10 times on this podcast already this season and an Arizona state pitching staff that has pitched incredibly well all season long and is coming off of a great weekend against Washington state. I don't know that any of us expected Arizona state to pitch as well as they have so far this season, but they're out there, they're doing it. And uh, you know, they, they, they threw two shutouts last weekend against Washington State. Now, while I think Washington State has a solid offense, it's not Arizona's offense. You're probably not shutting Arizona out. Certainly not shutting them out twice. Uh, but can you slow them down much the way UCLA did two weeks ago? Yeah, that, that'll be the – that's the big question there. Um, yeah, what they're doing on the mound is incredibly impressive. It, it kind of leads me to wonder, like, how good was this pitching staff going to be if everybody had been healthy? And I know that's not – the simplest question, because if 
certain guys had stayed healthy. Maybe a guy like, you know, Brock Peary doesn't get a chance to do what he did last weekend against Washington state. And we never know exactly how good he is. So I get it that it's not that simple, but man, if all the guys who have been good for them since those injuries happened, can, you know, were as good as they are. And then you add those, those guys being healthy as opposed to injured. Like suddenly you're talking about like, my goodness, like one of the better pitching staff, certainly on the, on the West coast and perhaps in the country based on what they've, what they've done, but this will be, this will be another, a whole different challenge for sure. Um, you know, Arizona, really incredible. I, and, you know, I won't, I won't uh, force you to give us spoiler alert, but I have to imagine Jacob Berry is fast working his way up the ladder for national player or freshman of the year candidates, because he's hitting 449. That is down from, I guess it can't be down from the weekend because that's all they played, but I guess maybe I did the math wrong when I looked at it over the weekend, but 449 average this year for the freshman Jacob Berry, still very much an open question uh, where or if he ends up playing defense uh, moving forward in his Arizona career, but certainly that bat is going to play. He has been a huge part of this offense being as good as it is. Uh, you know, some of the other guys that we expected to be good have been good, but, but man, he's been above and beyond, I think what anybody could have, could have expected here. Um, but if to your point, if Arizona state can slow down, you're never going to stop that offense, but if Arizona state can slow down, that Arizona offense. I don't know that it necessarily makes me feel anything less about the Wildcats necessarily, but it would really start to hammer home the idea that this Arizona state team is actually pretty good and beyond um, just being kind of a good story. They're overcoming all of these injuries because the lineup is pretty good too. It's not Arizona good, but like, it's just a nice well-rounded team. They're, they're playing pretty good team defense. They found enough arms to fill in those gaps and offensively there's no Torkelson. There's not even really a Trevor Halver necessarily but there are a lot of really nice players who are, who are off to good starts. And so it's, it's just a really well-rounded team beyond, I think what we're used to seeing from an Arizona state team that the word association with offense is, is pretty strong with this team. Yeah. Sean McLean is the Sun Devils best hitter. That's Matt's younger brother. He's hitting 414. He's got four, four homers already this season. Uh, he's got five stolen bases. He just does a lot of things. Drew Swift has gotten a lot better offensively. Uh, from where he was his first few seasons, he's the one guy from the infield that's back. Uh, you know, from that twenty that twenty twenty infield that, that was so good. He he's back, and you know, they've gotten some nice contributions from Ethan Lawn and Hunter Haas, who were, were two freshmen. And um, you know, they're putting it together. Uh, it's uh, they're not going to necessarily keep pace with uh, with the Wildcats just from a pure power production and offensive production standpoint. But if their pitching staff does what they're capable of doing, you know, they, they might not need to. So, you know, I, I'm uh, I'm very intrigued by this. I've liked Arizona State all season long. I've just been kind of waiting for them to really make a statement that, yes, this team is more than just a kind of mid-level Pac-12 team. Like, we, they can shoot higher than that. Uh, and this weekend is their latest opportunity to do that. They did very well at Oregon. They just lost the series. It was you know, they, they very much were there with the Ducks on the first weekend of Pac-12 play. So now in a rivalry spot, can they take that next step against what we think to be a pretty darn good Arizona team? Yeah, that, that, that's, the, that's the question, because I think this really kind of, I don't want to say, I don't want to put too much on the series, but I think this will go a long way towards telling us where in the, where in the pecking order we need to slot Arizona State here. Are we talking about them alongside UCLA? In Arizona, or do we talk about them more with the whatever we 
determined to be the second tier of the Pac-12, which is still taking shape, but probably with, you know, an Oregon State or an Oregon kind of floats between the two groups, maybe. I think this weekend will go a long way towards um, telling us where we need to put them there, because I think I think right now they are the, they are kind of the ones floating between the two groups, along with Oregon, that we're not quite sure exactly what to do with just yet. Speaking of getting some clarity, let's uh, let's go to the Big Ten, where we're still seeking some clarity. And that's because they're only a few weeks into the season and the Big Ten can be pretty stratified. And you just end up with, uh, with a lot of weekends where teams are playing, you know, the better teams are playing teams that you figure are not. Now, there is no Big Ten tournament this year, but you would figure to be not Big Ten tournament level competition. Um, but this weekend, we have what should be a really good series. Uh, that is Indiana taking on Ohio State. Now, the Hoosiers, there's really no question they are one of the best teams in the Big Ten. They're 11-3. and three. Uh, They're right on the edge of the top 25 there. With an Arizona State, this weekend could be the weekend that pushes them over the top. Ohio State is a team that we, uh, we're still kind of trying to figure out what's going on with the Buckeyes. Uh, they have not started as well as you might have expected them to, considering their pitching staff. Uh, this weekend, though, offers uh, an, an outstanding opportunity. And, you know, on the flip side, this is going to be Indiana's biggest test to this point, we assume. Uh, you know, still, again, we're trying to learn about these teams, but Indiana's racked up that 11-3 and record playing Rutgers, Minnesota, Penn State, and Purdue, and Michigan State. And uh, I think they've played at least three or four two to four of the worst teams in the conference. I don't know where Michigan State's going to end up. That one's kind of a wild card, but Penn State, Purdue, and Minnesota sure look like they're they're kind of bottom of the barrel in the Big Ten. This is this is an Ohio State team that we expect to be better than that, and it's on the road. Yeah, it's a interesting one, and I, I look at Ohio State, and it's, it's one of those deals where the – well, two things. One is that – you know, we had questions about where offense was going to come. We had those questions, you know, frankly, a little bit last year. And if it weren't for freshman Cade Kern being kind of an instant star at this level, they'd be in real, real trouble. They're hitting 228 as a team, but nobody other than Kern is hitting better than 260, and he's hitting 357. So he's been a revelation, and absolutely, like, they, they just – they needed it. Um, but they – you know, early when I saw them in Greenville, I was kind of excited about what I saw from Connor Pohl. Like Connor Pohl's guy been in the pro- program a long time, just got a big physical guy, but he looked like he tran- transformed his body a little bit. Like he was, he was taking good at bats. He was physical. And, you know, Zach Dezenzo is kind of a similar story, but like some of the things I saw there, um, Sam Wilson, who was hitting the leadoff spot. I don't know that he is now, but he you know, was hitting leadoff spot at the time, kind of like what I saw from him and, and the offense has just fallen flat outside of outside of Kern. So that's been a problem that we kind of saw coming and has been outside of that one player, maybe even worse than I would have expected. And the, the pitching has been good in spots. It just hasn't been as good as it could be. You know, I've got a story coming in the magazine here pretty soon about the way Ohio State approaches pitching. And I'll, you know, uh, if you're interested in that, go read it in the magazine or online here before too much longer. But, you know, they, they really thought this was their well, and it's true. This is the best staff they've had in terms of arm talent at Ohio State that this coaching staff has had. But 
Seth Lonsway has really kind of struggled. The same old issues with Lonsway have continued to pop up where he's, you know, he's averaging right at five innings a start. He's walking too many guys. He's still hard to hit, but he's just giving away a lot of free passes. And that continues to be a problem. A lot of wild pitches, which is a problem. Um, you know, they've been pretty good in the bullpen in, in places. TJ Brock has been, has been excellent, but Jack Neely, the, the Texas Juco transfer, um, you know, has been okay, but not great. Garrett Burhan has been a tick worse than maybe thought um, he would be. They've struggled to find a fourth guy. It's been mostly Will Finnig and he has just not been very good. So the pitching is not bad, but it's also not as good as the talent would suggest it could be. And when you couple that with the offense that has just really, really struggled outside of one guy, that's a recipe for Ohio state being eight and seven and like a really uneven eight and seven. They'll have games where it's like, aha, you know, they're, they're figuring it out. This is great. And then they have games where they just aren't all that competitive. So it's been kind of hard to, hard to read that team. And it's, it's different from Indiana, which is a team that is just kind of, just kind of rolled on. And, um, you know, it's interesting because with Indiana, we, we talk, we've talked a lot in the past about in previous years about it being an offense that, you know, it's going to strike out some, it's going to hit some home runs. Um, you're just going to take the good with the bad. And uh, this year so far, the good has outweighed the bad. It's still, the offense still kind of looks a little like that. Maybe not as many home runs as you might've expected so far, but uh, Cole Barr's off to a really nice start. Drew Ashley, Grant Richardson, like those are the guys you want to see off to good starts for that offense. So that's been, that's been good. The, the, dif- the difference maker for Indiana has just been the way they pitched and, you know, McCade Brown, um, has not lived up to those first two starts that he put together this season where he was absolutely dominant, but he's still been pretty good. And then Tommy Summer, like the ultimate, you know, crafty lefty pitchers pitcher has been as advertised in that role. And he's really kind of steadies that rotation. So, um, you know, I think the gap between Michigan and Indiana is maybe not as, uh, is not very big. And I think this will be an opportunity for Indiana to continue to show that this weekend. One thing I'm interested in this weekend and, given what we've said about Ohio State's offense, I don't know that this is the weekend that it really gets answered, but Indiana has only used 11 pitchers this season. And I mean, that's a little bit jarring when you go look at some of the numbers of the the teams that have, I mean, they've played 14 games. That's a part of it. Uh, but, you know, you go and you look at some of the, the teams in the SEC or the ACC or the Pac-12 or really anywhere else. And like they're using more than 11 pitchers. And so on the one hand, that means, that Indiana is getting good length from their starting pitchers and that they have a group of relievers that they really can rely on starting with uh, Matt Lebwicki at the back of the bullpen. He's been, he's been great as a closer for them. Uh, so all of that is good, but they, uh, the last two weeks, Indiana has only played three game series. This is a four gamer. So they're probably going to need a little bit more pitching uh, just a little bit more find a, a few more guys. You, you mentioned Ohio State's struggling in some respects to find a fourth guy that Lonsway isn't going deep enough and all the rest of that. And okay, like we'll see how that plays out, but what does it look like from an Indiana perspective uh, where they haven't needed that stuff as much because they, they've been playing uh, for the last two weekends anyway, these, these three game series. So I think that's, that's one thing to watch. And then I'm, I'm still kind of waiting for Grant Richardson to like, he's having a completely good season. Sitting 333, he has three homers in 14 games. Um, he's somehow managed to get hit by pitch five times already. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's a nice start to the year. But then when you look at what he was doing last year, it was just so much better than this. And 
I mean, yes, that was aberrational, but I do think that he has another gear to reach. And at least at some point he's going to lock in and have a few incredible weekends in a row. And that's going to be really special when it happens. So just something to watch. I, I think the Indiana offense is good, but it's not, it's not as potent as it's been in years past. And part of that is that they're still looking for, you know, somebody to emerge as the big time power threat that Indiana so often has had. Uh, Cole Barr has yet to hit a home run. Grant Richardson's sitting on three to lead the team. Like somebody is going to do a little bit more in terms of power. And uh, I, I assume that's just the way the Hoosiers have been for the last, I don't know, decade. Uh, so I'm, I'm kind of waiting to see who, who it, who it is that takes that jump, whether it's Richardson, Barr, Jordan Fucci, uh, somebody, somebody's going to do it. I assume. I'm glad you bring that up because it's one of those deals where like, because you dipped a toe in the water a little bit, like I was a little more, I stopped myself short because I, it's hard when you look at a team that has a couple guys hitting close to 400 and then, you know, a couple of other guys hitting well above 300 and, and, and then some guys kind of in the middle. I didn't know that I wanted to make this leap necessarily, but, but I kind of agree with you. Like, I think the offense has been pretty good, but it's just not, doesn't seem like it's as physical as it's been. They've got a good number of doubles, I guess. And, and maybe some ballpark effects matter here, like without looking at where they played and when they play all that kind of stuff. But it doesn't, it just doesn't quite look like I expected it to look for the Indiana offense. And maybe that's still coming. Also, one of the interesting things is they're not, they're still striking out a decent amount but the strikeout numbers aren't astronomically high. And so I'm not suggesting that they're trading off one for the other, because I think we're too quick to kind of make assumptions about stuff like that. Well, if you just quit trying to hit home runs, you'd strike out like as if that's a one-to-one -one thing. Um, but it is interesting that it, 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 you know, it seems like they've made some strides in that regard, but they're really not hitting with the same power. And again, to be clear, I'm not saying one thing has anything to do with the other, but it's just not quite the the stat sheet that I kind of expected to see from from Indiana. So that's 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 a good point because it on 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 one hand they're getting good years from all the guys they most of the guys they needed to have good years offensively, and on the other hand it doesn't seem to quite be adding up to exactly what we thought it would be adding up to at this point. All right, so that's the uh, that's a series to watch in the Big Ten this weekend. Uh, Joe, those were my series that I, I picked out as the best ones of the weekend. What do you have for us this week? Okay, so full disclosure, my original pick is no longer happening. I picked Pepperdine at San Diego, uh, interesting WCC series. Um, but I guess just quickly, that series is being canceled because of, as Teddy uh, posted on Twitter earlier today, Wednesday, uh, Pepperdine going on a two-week COVID pause, and I – I, instead of previewing that, I will just say, man, this Pepperdine season has not gone anything like I imagined. And yes, they could come back from COVID pause and play well and get into the conference tournament, win the conference tournament and go to a regional and do all the things they kind of expect to do. That's, I don't want to take that, say that that's not a scenario that could play out, but, you know, coming back from a COVID pause is tough. Just ask any of the, the basketball teams that, that did it and perhaps some of the baseball teams that have had it. Yeah, look at, look at how long it took Wake Forest to get back. For sure. And yeah, and Wake Forest is still working their way back. It's taken a long time for them to kind of get back to anything close to full strength. And so that's a tough thing to do. And, and unfortunately, I think for a team that I think has a lot of talent, you know, Pepperdine is getting, unfortunately, pretty close to this just being kind of a lost season. Because by the time they get back, the season's going to be beyond the halfway point of the regular season. And, you know, you, you give them a couple weeks to kind of get their feet under them. Again, they could still make a run, but man, it's just going to be tough sledding for that team. And, and that's a team that has 
played under its expectations and under its talent level so far this season. And now they're going to get derailed at a time when, Hey, you know, you win this series against a San Diego team that appears to be pretty good. Like suddenly maybe now you're, you're feeling a little bit better about yourself and things are moving in the right direction. And they're just not going to have that opportunity. So that was my original series choice. So I had to pivot from that kind of late in the game. Well, one but, thing on that though, yeah, sure. uh, you know, you're saying that about Pepperdine, like, honestly, that might be the end of their season. Like, I'm not saying they, they quit, uh, but it's going to be hard. Uh, they're, they're not doing a West coast conference tournament this year. So um, uh, that might be, that might be it. Yeah. That, so yeah, I mean, you're right. I, I, um, I guess I had forgotten that they're not doing a WCC. It's kind of hard to keep up. Like I, I probably need to go back and reacquaint myself with like the postseason situations for these conferences, because I know some are pressing forward with business as usual. Some have reduced the number. Some aren't doing them at all. You know, famously the big Ten's not doing it, but that one we're all pretty aware of, but they're <laughs> every league is doing something a little bit different. It's probably not a bad idea for me to just go reacquaint myself with what's going on with each conference in that in that way. So, yeah, you're right. I mean, we, we saw some of that and we're seeing it in FCS football right now and they have a playoffs to play for. Um, now they don't have conference tournaments. So if you start 0 and 3 in conference play in football, you're kind of toast, but you know, we've seen it now where I think, you know, half a dozen different teams have after three or four games just decided, eh, we're, we're going to not do this and get ready for a fall season, which is of course the variable that's different in football is that FCS uh, perhaps kind of crazily is trying to play a spring season and then turn around and play a normal fall season. So teams are bailing on that uh, rather quickly. So anyway, so the series I kind of chose hastily at the end, and I really want to kind of use this as a jumping off point to tap into some of Teddy's expertise on this conference and kind of his thoughts. I know he spent a little time thinking about it, but uh, believe it or not in the Mac, we are sitting in a situation where uh, Bowling Green, which is hosting Kent state this weekend, is sitting at six and two. Uh, mind you, this was a Bowling Green team that for a number, uh, few weeks over the summertime thought they were done playing baseball and now is back and they're six and two. And, and again, it's a series win against Ohio U and Akron. Neither of those teams have been particularly good so far. So take that with however many grains of salt you want to take it with, but six and two and uh, Kent State sitting at one and three and a Kent State team that, um, also didn't do very much in non-conference. They did get one win against Mississippi State, so I guess kudos there. But they, they just haven't been quite the Kent State team that we're used to seeing. Um, still got a lot of time to figure it out in the MAC, but uh, I'll, I'll just throw it over to you, Teddy, to, to kind of give me the rundown on what you've seen from, from Kent State so far, and not just what you think about this series, but just kind of uh, the MAC at large to this point. Uh, well, I want to thank you for giving me this platform to do so. Um, the here's the thing about the Mac. Uh, it's uh, basically, you know, they are a conference that is not having a tournament, and you know, honestly, it it sure looks like uh, this is not going to be Kent State's year. You don't lose a series to Northern Illinois. Now, this is a Northern Illinois team that we think might be better than recent vintage NIU teams. But you don't lose a series to NIU to open MAC play typically, and then go on to have uh, what what would normally be described as a good year, uh, particularly not when you do this at home. Uh, so I regret to inform you that I think Kent State is is just not going to have a, a particularly good season. They're sitting at eight and eleven now, and that NIU team that beat them uh, went on to lose a series at Miami of Ohio the next weekend. Um, now Miami 
is one of those three teams tied at the, the top of the standings uh, with Bowling Green and Ball State uh, at six and two. And the more that this continues, the more that it looks like it might be Miami and Ball State, two, uh, two longstanding rivals as the best two teams in this conference. Now, Central Michigan still probably has something to say about this. They did win a series at West Virginia. They have only played the one conference series so far. It was a split against Ohio. So we'll see where the chips come in uh, on that. But for Bowling Green, just regardless of whether they can keep this up or not, I don't really care. Uh, It is remarkable what they're doing. They Not only was their program canceled, Basically, every player enters the transfer portal after that, and several of them found new spots and left. Uh, and they continued, they stayed gone. They did not come back. Uh, they, they left and, and, and they're, they're gone now. And so that took away a few of the better players that, that Bowling Green had. And they started the season getting swept at Middle Tennessee State. Um, you know, they played well against James Madison the next weekend, but then they got swept in a four-game series at Western Kentucky. And, you know, it wouldn't have been that surprising, I don't think, if just from there things had just kind of continued to spiral downwards. But, no, they they got back on track. Um, you know, they won a series at Ohio, which is a, a solid team, I think. And then, yeah, Akron, not not good either particularly. But they, they went out and, and they took care of business there. So, I you know, Absolutely. Congratulations to, to Bowling Green for coming out and you know playing this well at, at the start of the season. Um, I know that they aren't going to be just satisfied with this from here. They're, they're going to want more, but uh, this is a chance. This is their first home game since the, the program got cut. I, I hope that they're all able to, to really you know enjoy that as much as possible. I don't you know, know offhandedly what the Bowling Green um attendance situation is, but I hope as many people as possible are able to, uh, to take that in, even if it's just the parents, uh, because, you know, I mean, just for them to have gone through what they've gone through and now to be coming out of this through two weekends tied for first place in the Mac is, uh, is a significant accomplishment, but we're going to find out how good this BG team is a lot more over the next month. Uh, you know, it's Kent state, it's at central Michigan, it's Miami, uh, there's Ball State the first weekend of May, so we'll we'll find out in a hurry. But for now, one of the better stories uh, in the I don't want to maybe not so far as to say in the sport, but it's a it's a really good story and certainly the best story in the MAC to this point. Yeah, fun to see, and you know it's possible what they all went through together as a team, um, kind of a galvanizing effect a little bit, and maybe that's some of what we're seeing here, which makes it all the cooler, you know, that that they're pulling off what they're pulling off. Certainly it's, it's hard not to root for them a little bit, just given what they've been through, but looking forward to seeing the rest of the season, the Mac, they got some interesting stuff there. You know, ball state's got some, some good pitching talent. Central Michigan still has a lot of holdovers from that team that was excellent in 2019. And I've actually meant to dig around a little bit at that because, you know, knowing that, you know, uh, makes it to where them being just 10 and eight is a little bit curious. So, but certainly that's a talented team. Uh, Miami, Ohio has a guy throwing 101 miles an hour. So uh, there is there is that as well. So lots to lots to see in the MAC. Looking forward to seeing the rest of it play out throughout the rest of the season. No doubt about that. All right, that's uh, that's what to watch this weekend around the country. We'll uh, we'll see where uh, where this weekend takes us. Like I said, not that many ranked series matchups, uh, but sometimes that that means that there's more of a chance for upsets. So we'll uh, we'll see what this weekend 
has in store for us. And no matter what it does, we will be back here with another edition of the Baseball America College podcast on Monday. So if you're subscribed to the Baseball America podcast on your favorite podcasting app, uh, that'll, that'll pop there right into your phone and you can check it out. Until then, we'll have plenty of coverage over at BaseballAmerica.com. And you can follow us on Twitter for even more, hopefully, insightful analysis. Uh, from myself and Joe, I'm at Ted Cahill. Joe is at Joe Healy BA. Uh, I want to thank you all for listening to this edition of the Baseball America College podcast presented by Rapsodo. For Joe, I'm Teddy. We'll talk to you next time.